On a recent afternoon in the Little Burgundy neighborhood of Montreal, an eclectic and diverse audience of a couple hundred people gathered in the Beanfield Theater. It's a former movie house from the turn of the 20th century that was later turned into a concert venue. There was a sense of eagerness and also of not entirely knowing what was going to happen. Little Burgundy is the historically black, English-speaking neighborhood in Montreal that famously produced the pianist Oscar Peterson. There was a strong community feeling in the theater, a sense of the neighborhood. Kids ran in the aisles, while older matriarchs fanned themselves and waited for whatever was about to happen to happen. Although this event was affiliated with the Montreal Jazz Festival, this was not something for the average jazz festival attendee. It had a largely local feeling. One got the sense that maybe not everyone there really knew who they were going to see. After some preliminary introductions, one of the programmers of the Montreal Jazz Festival, a local musician himself, walked out on the stage and introduced the guest of honor, Herbie Hancock. What followed was a somewhat unusual, at times even surreal, though beautiful conversation with Herbie about his career, his general outlook, and his feelings about technology today. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. The Montreal Jazz Festival is massive. It spans 10 days and hundreds of concerts. Much of the festival is free, outdoors, and open to the public, but there are also indoor events, and Herbie would be performing the next night at a sold-out show in the 3,000-seat Wilfred Pelletier Theater downtown. But back in Little Burgundy, he was up close and personal, there to talk rather than to play. Because it was impossible to record his presentation for broadcast, what follows are excerpts of Herbie's comments transcribed by the AI podcast speech-to-text tool Descript and then reinterpreted using the AI text-to-speech tool Speechify. Is it clearly the ethical thing to do to play you Herbie Hancock's comments as interpreted by a computer? I don't know. In fact, the ethical, creative, and existential questions raised by artificial intelligence were pervasive during my week in Montreal as I talked to musicians, spectators, and journalists. I'm not saying that I've reached any real conclusions about any of it, but it seemed somehow fitting to invite an AI narrator to co-host with me today. So you'll hear the voice of a woman, but the words she speaks are all Herbie Hancock. And this pseudo-Herbie will return to serve as our guide through the conversations today. Okay, Herbie, take it away. Okay, first of all, can you imagine with the advent of technology and the development of the automobile that they didn't used to have seat belts? A lot of people got killed because they didn't have seat belts. That was during my time when I was young. They didn't have seat belts. They did, but they weren't compulsory. You didn't have to put them on. But then they made a rule that we all had to wear seat belts or pay a fine or get arrested. And a lot of lives were saved. So the rules are there because of the circumstances. The circumstances are there in order to make forward motion continue. I don't mean forward motion, like in a car, but the forward motion of whatever the subject is, whether it's technology or whether it's music or whatever. The rules are there so that you could actually do something together with a similar goal, which is just like conversation. If two people are talking at the same time, nobody's going to hear what the other person is saying, right? How would you answer questions? How would you learn from a teacher? The rules are there just so things can move forward and that you can learn to appreciate what you hear in them. You can't have a band where nobody's listening. Well, yes, you could have a band where nobody's listening to each other, but I don't think I would be very interested in hearing the outcome of that. Do you? It would just sound like cacophony, just noise, more or less. And maybe you could take some of it, but you'd soon get tired of hearing that. So in order to be able to live together, there has to be some sense of order. And that's what the rules are for 
so that everything can move forward with some degree of agreement and that we have respect for each other. Now, the rules also have to evolve according to circumstances. If everybody constantly stays at the same level, and then someone comes along and breaks a rule, some people will be confused by that. Others will be curious. I'm not talking about laws now, not those kinds of rules, like laws within a society. I'm talking about music, so things can begin to evolve and develop. Because something new has been added, something new has been found. Thousands of fans crammed into the M. Tellus Club on Montreal's St. Catherine Street for Snarky Puppy's festival show. Snarky Puppy was formed in 2004 by bassist and primary composer Michael League at the University of North Texas. The band and Michael have gone on to make a lot of history and a lot of music, win awards, tour relentlessly, and define an approach to record making and musical collaboration that has influenced a generation of musicians and bands that followed. I first talked to Michael League in February of 2020, just a couple of weeks before the pandemic. And you can hear that episode in the archive at third-story.com. We caught up in Montreal backstage at one of his shows. In addition to playing with Snarky Puppy, he also did a stripped-down set with just a few members of the band and another show with drummer Nate Smith and guitarist Lionel Luecke. Watching you play last night, I realized how happy the band is in performance. Mm. So much of it is consumed through videos and records that you make. And I always felt when I saw the videos that you were really masterful at understanding how to communicate the energy of the band through the screen, Mm -hmm. that that was a big part of the innovation of the band. How do you approach those two things differently, the stage and the sort of live recording? I think just in general in life, trying to make something something it's not, Mm -hmm. is not prudent, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it'll just never work. A live gig is a live gig. A live recording is a different thing. A rehearsal is a different thing. An Mm -hmm. album is a different thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's whatever it is that you're doing, you, you, you strive to do it in the best way possible that fits the context yeah you know and i love that our live gigs are like much looser and like much more chaotic and less formal and then the video recordings are like a little more pro Mm -hmm. and people are like kind of on better behavior Mm -hmm. and and stuff is kind of maybe performed tighter and then when we do studio records sonically they're much more explorative you know i mean i just i i like that those three things are all different yes you know, there's a kind of a, a sense of integration of the material. Like you have absorbed these arrangements. The band mm. is ready to play these arrangements. And I see yeah. you personally, you in particular, kind of surrendered to the arrangement. Like mm. you know what's going to happen and then you can really kind of let go and be mm. a little free. But there have been a lot of arrangements over the years of this band. Sure. Are they all in muscle memory? I mean, if somebody called a tune from 15 years ago, would you have it? Yeah, I think so. I think most of the members of the band would have it. I mean, the songs we haven't played in 15 years, we still played 300 times before we stopped playing them, you know? So this band has played a lot of concerts, you know, over 2,000 gigs. So I, I think that it's in there somewhere, you know? The way that we did it is much more like Led Zeppelin than like a jazz trio from 2005 or something. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which we're different from groups like that. One is that we have the same group of people going on tour after tour after tour after tour. You know, the other thing is that the mem- the music is memorized immediately, we never use sheet music. Yeah. You know? We haven't used sheet music since the first year that we were a band. Yeah. So I think those things make us more kind of like a garage band, rock band, than a kind of typical mm-hmm. jazz group, whatever that is now, because in the last 15 years, a typical the definition of a typical jazz group is totally 180'd. But I guess I'm talking about like the kind of jazz that was happening when I started the band almost mm-hmm. 20 years ago. You know, kind of like very, very cerebral 
mega complex arrangements that are impossible to memorize. Yes. People had to read music, and that's kind of not what we're about. I think we're much more garagey. Well, it seems sense. like the types of complexities in your arrangements are more like the second time we hit this section. I'm going to do these hits and then you're going to do this thing right. like stuff that if you had to write it out, it would take forever. It's yeah. That stuff is actually churchier yeah. than it is classical or yeah. even jazzy. I think, yeah. I think it's coming from the fact that four or five of our members, the first 15 years of their life, every experience they had was in church. And yeah. then for people like me for several years of my life, the only experiences that I, that I, that I was having musically were in churches or in clubs with bands where the musicians grew up in, in black church, you yeah. know? So, yeah, it's that thing of like coming up with arrangements at soundcheck yeah. or like somebody does something says, oh, that's cool. Let's let's do that. Let's do that and see what happens. And and that's fun. I like it like that. It feels much more kind of like uh, organic. Yeah. You know that it's not someone sitting in their room like, you know, by candlelight with a what are those things? Quill. Called? A quill pen, <laughs> you know, crafting the perfect yes. arrangement. It's not yeah. like that. It's like we played one night, somebody messed something up yeah. and it turned into something cool and we thought like oh let's do that yeah and then that thing grows over time it's not just that we do that every night you right know? it evolves yeah so i mean i like it i like it. i feel like in general the band the entire band surrenders to the music and to the arrangement and that arrangement is is fluid it's constantly changing you left brooklyn and moved to spain mm -hmm. pretty much right before the pandemic yes you were building a studio building a life mm -hmm. finding community there yeah and also experience, probably, I imagine, a level of isolation that you couldn't have predicted considering what happened. Sure. Coming out of that experience, did anything change for you getting back out on the road? Is it just picking up where you left off? Yeah, I don't think any musician that's on tour right now looks at it the same as yeah. they did before COVID. I think yeah. people became aware of really what it is that we do. And I mean that in every sense, like positive and negative, mm -hmm. you know, that, that what we're doing on, a, on the positive side is like an extreme luxury to be able to travel around the world and get treated well <laughs> and meet new people and eat new food and, and share art with other humans that we would otherwise never be in the same room as. Mm -hmm. And also that music is medicinal and totally essential Hmm. to many hum many different individuals' happiness. You know, there are a lot of people on this earth that really do not enjoy life without music. Mm. And so I noticed that, and also I noticed that I need to play it for people mm -hmm. to feel good, you know? Probably just because I wouldn't be able to do anything else with my life if if I if I didn't have a career in music, you know? But also the, the negative things, too, that, like, touring is incredibly hard on your body. Mm -hmm. Definitely takes years off your life, and in a lot of senses, it's... And you got used to staying home a little more? Yeah. And, you know, you don't sleep. Diet is crazy. You know, it's changing every day. And physically carrying 12 pounds of instrument or luggage on your back through airports all day. Yes. Every day while sleeping two hours. You know, um, being under stressful circumstances sometimes. I mean, that stuff is also stuff that we just kind of took for granted pre-covid and then now and you in particular you were a road animal i mean you yeah were... yeah yeah i mean i was without a physical address for almost half a decade in the bad old the bad <laughs> old days you know so yeah i mean i think i think that during covid touring mu musicians got in touch with like let's just call it normal human life mm -hmm. that the majority of people experience yes. that we don't ever experience 
And I think that we bring that with us now when we're on tour. I think people are much more demanding of themselves in terms of like self-care. Like we have a 4 a.m. lobby call. It's 10.30 p.m. Do I go to the bar and just like not sleep and yeah. go straight to the plane? Or do I sleep two and a half hours, three and a half hours? Like definitely going to sleep. Three you're going to take, st- take the sleep hours. option. Yeah. yeah. And I think most people are kind of in that zone. I think yeah. we all have more perspective yes. on what it is we do. Um, and I'm definitely grateful for that. Has your rider changed at all? Has your catering request yes. changed? It got healthier. Did it? More, it got healthier. There's more vegetarian stuff. Because there's, there's a few people in the band who aren't strict vegetarians but don't eat a lot of meat. Yeah. You know, eat a lot less now. I think people are more aware of environmental stuff after COVID. You know, like people had a lot of time to sit around and read things. <laughs> and it's funny. Like now, like uh, four or five of the guys in the band, like we're playing tennis almost every day. Really? You know, so... Uh, there's like three or four other guys that started running and they're like running every day. You know, I think people are a lot more focused on, on making touring life look a little more like what normal life would be. Yes. You know, well, you got a taste of it. Maybe that's what, as you say, maybe yeah. musicians got finally got to see what, yeah. what all the fuss was about. Yeah. It makes the music better too. I do notice that like that, that, um, release of energy mm-hmm. is very advantageous yes. and uh, you know, it has a, it has a big effect on the way that people play on stage. Michael Lee, it's great to catch up with you, man. Yeah, great to see you again. You know, like I was just drinking a coffee downstairs and I'm a vegan so I have almond milk or soy milk. I didn't know anything about that when I was a kid. I don't know if they even had that then, but now they do. That's because new discoveries are made, because people can find new sources and new ways of doing things. And the great thing about human beings is that we have the ability to perceive things in different ways that can lead to advancement. So, I have been known to break the rules in music because I find that it led me to some more interesting places and evidently people agreed with me because they bought my records. Drummer Nate Smith played a series of shows in Montreal this year as part of the festival's Invitation series. Each night was a different configuration. One night, for example, was a trio with bassist Victor Wooten and guitarist Corey Wong. I heard him play with electronic multi-instrumentalists Cartoons and Kiefer. Nate Smith has become one of the most influential drummers alive today. He's equally at home playing straight-ahead jazz as he is playing beat-based hip-hop-influenced music. He considers himself to be part of a generation that has applied the sensibilities of the legendary producer Jay Dilla to the drum set. He's also an accomplished rock and funk drummer. He toured for much of last year with the singer Brittany Howard, for example, and he's a member of the funk band The Fearless Flyers. And he's also a sensitive composer himself. Incredibly, a track that he produced back when he was just getting his start in music in Virginia ended up being used on a Michael Jackson record. So Nate is no stranger to the conversation around music and technology. We first spoke for this podcast back in September of 2021. You can hear that conversation in the archive at third-story.com. We caught up this year in the lobby of his hotel the morning after his show with Cartoons and Kiefer. You said something last night from the stage that I th- I thought was really significant. I think you were making a point of saying it also, mm-hmm. which is that loop-based music, music that's in- influenced by electronic music, mm-hmm. groove-based music, mm-hmm. people maybe, especially the jazz police, might write it off as being easy. Yes. And you made a point of saying this is not easy. No. And committing to the music is more challenging than people might realize. One hundred percent. You know, um, if you are a technically facile musician with a with a an active imagination, it's hard not to play. It's hard not to play. If you if you have a lot of ideas that you want to express, it's really hard to resist that urge. There were there were several times last night when I kind of had the felt the 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 itch 
to go to stray from the thing or start playing over the form or playing yeah. over the bar. But a lot of times, you know, musicians get caught up in like the sort of look at me part of the yes. of the music. And I don't know. I think that 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 music doesn't call for that. Yes. I think it's it's really it's also pretty vulnerable to leave space. Yeah. Because you know th there's all these expectations the audience has or yeah. we think the audience has. Yes. And then you play it and when you leave the space you see how they react to it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it really is something magical, man, when you just put things in the right place, yeah. you know. Everybody's pulse is a little different. And that's a big part of the thing, too. I mean, that's what you're bringing is your personal feel to it. Absolutely. It, it, it takes on a life of its own. Whenever yeah. we try to emulate yeah. loop-based music, yes. you know, it comes to life. Yes. You know, a machine is going to play it the exact same way every time. Yes. Musicians are not. Yes. And it's that imperfection yes. that makes it so much fun to play because yeah. we're kind of striving to play it as consistently as possible. But we're human beings you know yes. so and and you know with our own internal rhythm yes internal clock so we're going to have a different sense of it you know and sometimes the tempi will speed up yeah. or slow down or yeah. whatever but that's the human element of yeah it. i feel like that's a beautiful space is that that connection between like you know a, a person and technology or a person i feel like that that's not new in music at all you know like this idea that okay what is what can i express through the technology yes you know yeah. Well, and I think you are of a generation and are a certain kind of musician also who's equally influenced mm. by beat based music yep. and electronic music yep. and sort of looser, yes. you know, performed music, yeah, live played music. Yeah. They're both parts of my musical yeah. DNA. I mean, I was thinking a lot about, I had a Stevie Wonder pin on yeah. uh, last night and I was thinking about, for some reason last night I just started thinking about Stevie. I started thinking about all of those early Stevie record, his first solo records yeah. with the Tonto synth records, Inner Visions, yeah. Music of My Mind. And you think about him expressing himself through the machine, using the technology yeah. and the sounds he got out of the machine and like the, the, the humanness he got out of it. You know, Dilla had the same gift, like yeah. humanizing the drum machine, humanizing the sample, yeah. you know, the sampler. It's, it's something. And I, you know, I have as much respect for those guys as I have for Pat Metheny or Elvin Jones or yeah. who, you know, I, I think about Elvin a lot too because Elvin, he even further humanized <laughs> yeah. the, the the drum set, you know, and the way he played and, and the way he reshaped our perception of like yeah. the triplet in music. And Have you been thinking about AI, chat GPT, you know, speaking about the interaction between creativity and technology? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I Maybe naively. Yeah. I'm thinking that what humans do, particularly with instruments, mm -hmm. can't really be replicated. I feel like even vocal vocalists, I don't I mean as as good as this software gets, as I think that there is a feeling yeah. and an emotion that can't be achieved, I yeah. think, uh, with, with I, but you know, again, this could be naive on my part. I don't know, but I, I do hold out hope. Yeah. that AI won't be able to duplicate that feeling. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think that's possible. I don't know. There's something, there has to be something that makes us human. Yes. You know, I don't know that AI can replicate that. I'm thinking about my heroes, my musical heroes. Yeah. I'm thinking about Stevie. I'm thinking about Herbie. Yeah. You know, if Joe Zawinul was here, I'm, yeah. I'm curious what he would do with it. Yeah. We will see a musician come along who finds some bridge between yeah. what AI can do and what people can do. Yes. And that person will create something that we all emulate, yeah. you know? 
have there been moments in your creative development when there was a before and an after in terms of some influence that showed up and you were like the world is different now wow it's hard to, uh, yeah, i know it's hard to no 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 it's it but it, i tell you it 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 just takes me back yeah. so if i go back to the beginning yeah it's probably the beginning of my playing it's probably what was on the radio yeah and me emulating what was on the radio so at the time it was prince and it was michael jackson and it was the police and it was peter gabriel and it was all those drummers yeah. playing with them and i was emulating those drummers yeah. and it was like the, okay so that's possible and then it was art blakey and then it was max roach yeah. when i discovered art blakey and particularly elvin jones it was like oh that's possible too yeah. things i just didn't know was possible on the instrument yeah. so that's that's always something that shifts your perception yeah. and then it was hip-hop it was like a tribe called quest and yeah. it was dilla yeah I think Dilla's a before and after for a lot of musicians. Yes. He seems to be one of the more transformational figures in music in the last several decades. You yeah. know, like he, it, it, and, and what's really wild is that he was never a popular guy. He was never, he never made hit records, but he did something. He found some bridge between the human and the technology that everyone else is emulating, you know? So I can I can look at those particular moments. I can think about D'Angelo yeah. being from Virginia and yeah. hearing, you know, Brown Sugar and then Voodoo for the first time. And that was and that was a big trans transition huge, between those two records. Huge transition. And it was only I guess five years. Yeah. But it felt longer. Yeah. Because, you know, the the first record was was a little bit more, you know, kind of keyboard and programming yeah. driven. But Voodoo was live. Yeah. And Voodoo bore Dilla's influence yeah. too. So it, it's it's something very special. Those, those are I I think if um, that's that's getting me up to like age like twenty five. You were already playing. Yeah. You already had a sort of let's say a, a groove based conception mm -hmm. as as everybody who was playing at that time did. Yes. And then you had to confront yep. what they some people call Dilla time now right. this thing. Right. And you I, I heard you even dealing with it last night a little yeah. bit like how how much of that because at a certain point it, it becomes. Oh, it's that thing. Yeah. Oh, he's doing that thing. Right, oh, we're right. doing that thing. So right. it's like, well, how do you do that thing rather than just copying a, you know, a meme, a yeah. musical meme? Yeah, musical meme, right. You know, man, the thing that, this is another great thing I loved about last night with Kiefer and Cartoons, yeah. is that we were all playing Dilla Time. Yeah. So the band plays it. Yeah. It only works if the band does yeah. it. If everyone in the rhythm section does it, yeah. it's cool. If there's one person pushing an agenda, yeah. It never works. Yeah. If there's one drummer who wants to play the hi-hat super late yeah. and super triplety yeah. and everyone else is playing straight, it never works. Yeah. But people have to agree on what it is. Yeah. And so my, my friend Dan Charnis wrote the Dillaton yes. book. And he was the, sort of the first, I'm not sure if he was the first person to coin it, yeah. but he kind of set up the idea of this conflict between the straight eighth and the triplet. Yeah. And I thought about that, you know, thinking about the evolution of the triplet yeah. over the history of jazz yes. and and, and black music and whatever but man you know it only can work in service to the music it yes. can't be something that you do in spite of it yeah know? yeah yeah you know i look at the drummers particularly yeah. who were the first to emulate dilla chris dave chris dave kareem riggins yeah Questlove. yes i think of those three guys yeah. Questlove was in the studio with d'angelo yes. kareem was in the studio with dilla yeah and chris dave was in the studio with glasper yeah. so those three guys were were the i think the translators yeah 
And so then now there's a whole wave of cats. You know, yeah. I feel like I'm a part of that wave. Yes, Daru Jones, maybe. You know, there's a lot of cats who are uh, a, a part of that thing. But yeah. I, I kind of look to those three guys as the, the original translators. Yes. Yeah. I went on your Instagram this morning, and not surprisingly, there were some clips that you shared yep. of people who took video last night. I'm sure it happened the night before, and it'll happen tonight, too. Yeah. Despite the announcement that they, they make in the theater, please don't film it. And I saw that you shared it. And yep. I thought, on the one hand, every time you walk on stage, it's possibly and likely going to be documented by yes. somebody. There's no running from it. Nope. And on the other hand, it's a useful tool for you to communicate how you're feeling about what happened the night before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I think, you know, this audience was respectful. Yeah. I didn't see camera phones up the yeah. whole time. If we were playing a standing club somewhere, yeah. we would have seen camera phones yeah. up, lights on, yeah. people talking. It's cool. This audience was respectful. They were yeah. listening. So anyone who wanted to sneak a, you know, a five yeah. or 12 yeah. second, listen, sure, I'll share it. Yeah. You know, yeah, thank you. You know what I mean? It kind of goes back to the respect that the audience has for the show. Yes. But in a larger sense, how do you feel when you get on stage and all the cameras come out? I, I don't even really think about it yeah. now. I kind of feel like it's just um, it's just something else yeah. that's a part of live music yeah. now. It used to maybe maybe freak me out a little bit because yeah. it was like, okay, everyone, is anybody here with me? Yeah, exactly. Or is everyone in their phone yeah. kind of recording it for posterity for something that doesn't yeah that maybe they'll never even watch it yeah. you know but now i've also noticed that the trend is slowing down people aren't doing it as much people are listening yeah i think the pandemic taught that to people like the actual experience of yes. live music yeah is better without your phone yeah. you know i feel like people are getting fatigued yeah. people are getting so tired of yeah. being on their phones scrolling on their phones living on their phones selfie yeah. sharing it gets old yeah it gets old i think we're, we're starting to just now find out how to live with our phones. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I guess the final question, because I know you have a lot of interviews today and then you have another gig and yep. you're leaving tomorrow. What is your road etiquette just in terms of staying centered? Do you have any you know, routines or what, what do you do Man. to just keep it together? So I had uh, met my buddy, uh, Baron Thomas is a great guitar player. He lives here in town and uh, we met up for coffee yesterday. Yeah. And we started talking about something that I haven't done in a long time, which is meditation, yes. morning meditation. Yeah. The last like two or three trips that I've taken, when I can in the hotel early in the morning, yeah. as soon as I wake up, yeah. I give myself 10 minutes yep. of, of that. Set the timer, give it 10 minutes. I feel better on the days I do it than the days I don't yeah. do it. I'm not the best with working out. Yeah. I, sometimes I, I get on the trip. Sometimes I take walks. You know, I'm not that. But the meditation thing is important for me. Yeah. It really does. It, it's, it's starting to help me a lot more. Um, to navigate the inevitable stressors of road life, yeah. you know. In terms of the drums, I travel with a pair of sticks. I get a, a hand towel from the hotel or a pillow from the yeah. hotel, and I warm up for about five minutes every day on it. You warm up on a pillow? On a pillow. It definitely helps because there's no resistance. Yeah. Every stroke is intentional. Yep. And, you but know, there's it, no response. There's, there's no, no response. bounce. There's no bounce. It's like you're, it, everything you play, you have to play. Yeah. So I, I, I do love it, and it does. It's humbling. It's humbling. If that left hand is feeling, or whatever your weaker hand is, it's feeling tired, it yeah. shows. The pillow will tell you. <laughs> the pillow knows. <laughs> pillow talk. That's pillow talk. <laughs> well, Nate Smith, thank you so much. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you. I've been practicing Nichiren Buddhism for 50 years. It's from the 13th century in Japan. One day when I had been practicing for about seven years, I was chanting, and I started thinking about my family. I was thinking about how I had a nice life that I built, and my daughter and wife. I have a grandson now too. He's two and a half, but I didn't have a grandson then. I started thinking about me being a musician, how things had evolved in such a great way for me. 
And then when I started thinking about my wife, all of a sudden I started to realize, wait a minute, to my wife I'm her husband, that has nothing to do with me being a musician, wait a minute, to my daughter, I'm her father, it has nothing to do with being a musician, wait a minute, I'm a son myself, that has nothing to do with me being a musician, so I've got all these aspects of life, we all do, all these different aspects of life that have nothing to do with whether you are a doctor or lawyer, or whether you work at an office, and no matter what your job is or what your profession is, they have nothing to do with that. The only thing that ties them all together is the fact that you're a human being. That was an epiphany. I had been playing piano since I was seven years old. I always thought of myself as being a musician, but at that moment I realized that being a musician is not what I am, it's what I do. What I am is a human being, just like every one of us. That was a very important step. Also in the Buddhism that I practice, they talk about expanding your life and removing the walls that you put yourself in. You say, I'm a dancer, or I'm a dentist, or I'm a lawyer. Remove the walls and continue to be expansive. Every night in the Place des Festivals at the Montreal Jazz Festival, there's a large, like really large, free concert that can attract as many as 60,000 people when the weather's nice. One night this year, the place was packed to see the legendary DJ and producer DJ Premier play with his batter band. It's a collection of multifaceted musicians who helped to inject a live energy into music that was originally created by sampling other records. It's very meta, and it requires players with a wide range of skills and influences. Pianist Carlos Ohms is exactly that kind of player. He plays in the batter band with DJ Premier, who he refers to as Primo or Prem. And Carlos is also a producer, a musician, and he has a successful TikTok channel called The Royal Cusp that focuses on astrology. We talked at his hotel. You seem like you are equally and authentically interested in what other people might consider to be hard to square influences. Right, Everything right. from like, I don't know how you feel about the word the avant-garde, but I think you spent some time there. Totally, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, making very commercial kind of hip-hop tracks and very committed to it. You're also not afraid of social media. I, I'm afraid of social media when it comes to my music. Not afraid, but I'm less active. But I, I do create content with other things like I'm you know I'm really into astrology and spirituality yeah. so I ended up talking about that on camera and now I'm building an audience based around that so now that's sort of become a parallel existence yeah. and it doesn't connect with music yet but um, I'm surrounded by people whose social media game and content creation game in the music world is is incredible like Brady Watt my you know my partner in crime yep. uh, he's the guy who introduced me to DJ Premier um, he has a series called Bass and Bars where he plays bass with a great legendary rapper and, you know, those videos get sometimes millions of views. So, you know, I'm around some pretty um, stiff competition when it comes to that. So I'm still trying yeah. to find my own voice. But in terms of the genre thing, I, I grew up with hip hop. I grew up with R&B. I grew up with Latin music. And jazz was just one of those things that came... Uh, through music education and growing up in New Jersey we had access to all these great teachers Ralph Peterson, Mike Ladon, Don Braden, Joanne Brackeen, uh, Jerry Allen mm -hmm. and that's where I met Tyshawn was in mm -hmm. Newark at the Jazz for Teens and he's the one who opened my eyes up to the avant-garde because I respected him so much and who he was and this was before really he was out there crushing it us as as young teenagers we really looked up to him because he represented a certain sense of freedom and um, courage in terms of playing what he really wanted to play at a time when there was a lot of more maybe bebop oriented teachers who were kind of shunning his approach 
but we always knew he was going to be the man. So the mm-hmm. avant-garde had that appeal. It had this punk huh. rock appeal, this uh, anti-establishment appeal that really appealed to me in, you know, in my 20s. So um, the reality is I just feel like I couldn't keep up with you know, I got blessed to be able to play with Peter Evans, Steve Lehman, and I never felt like I was at their level in terms of commitment to that music and that language and the composing. So that's kind of kind of found my way out of there, you know. Interesting. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the story of, of the avant-garde in, in my career, yeah. And I think the world needs to know the level of artistry that exists in the underground and in jazz. And I always just felt... Not necessarily an obligation, but it just felt kind of like a calling that I really wanted to get involved in more of the mainstream, especially hip hop, um, which is also a very underground thing. You yeah. know, after talking to Preem, you realize like these guys didn't know it was going to blow up. They were just making music they loved that really spoke to them. And to me, that early 90s era of New York hip hop reminds me of uh, just the way they talk about it reminds me of the way Miles talked about the bebop era and Charlie Parker and those guys. Hmm. So I see a connection between the two. And I think maybe it's jazz education, or maybe it's just the way music goes. But but there's this very large gap. And, and I feel like it's starting to come back. Yep. Um, but I feel like I want to bring it more from behind the scenes of producing for people bringing some of these chords and these elements into the music. Yes. injecting it into the music but also i love working with songwriters and rappers i mean they're as creative as it gets man when you have the language to communicate to other jazz musicians for example the harmonic language or whatever does it ever get frustrating for you when you're communicating in other terms with artists who know what they want but they don't speak the same language of music school that was certainly the expectation but actually there's more freedom in it i find because you know if i'm working with the rapper who can't speak chords for example they're gonna ask for a vibe essentially you know they want something to feel gritty Mm -hmm. or dark and it's my job to kind of find the vibe but the freedom is that that doesn't mean c minor or or you know this particular set of chord changes just means give me an energy yeah and so what i've been able to do in the studio is just be honest with my music yeah and watching them vibe and react to stuff that i find interesting has been a a real um, revelation for me there's a lot of freedom in it actually yeah when you take theory out of the picture you're almost allowed to do a lot more because it's not spoken about it's not something you, it's just the sound of it and it makes sense you know yeah. um so yeah i find a great freedom in it i actually find more freedom working in the studio with like a premiere or a rapper than i did playing compositions hmm. you know which were for me it was very very challenging and and a level of focus that i don't want to say took the fun out of it but it made it very serious work and uh, i always wanted to play for happy crowds yeah so it's interesting that you said you're not afraid of social media but you are not comfortable asserting yourself necessarily musically yeah. on social media i saw some of your tiktok cusp videos yeah yeah and i mean you are as deep in that stuff i, I imagine as you are totally. at the laptop you totally. know it's hard not to wonder where the overlap is between those two things you know that's been the tough thing for me trying to figure that out the thing with the royal cusp was you know i focus on astrology yeah. and, and getting into some maybe of the deeper esoteric um, yeah. meanings of the symbols and the words and and um, get into some my interpretations of yeah. things like that it's always something i've been into but um i just i don't even want to connect the two because i, I love what that is on its own yeah. you know what i mean i'm not doing it for me i'm doing it because people responded to, to my first couple of videos and yeah. they were getting something positive out of it yeah so i almost felt an obligation to continue like oh wait i'm 
doing something positive. Yeah. And it just felt so much more direct than music. Music is very subjective in that way. You don't know if you're affecting somebody positively or not. Interesting. Unless you see them dancing and having a great time. Yeah. Of course. So that's something where there's this direct feedback. So now I'm trying to figure out how to translate that with music. I don't want to just say, here I am, here's my stuff, I hope you like me. Like I, I've always wanted to do very specific things and come up with a very specific mode yeah. of content that was made for the platform. And yeah. that's why I grew to TikTok because it has a very specific vibe to it that's yeah. easy to build into, you know what I mean? Um, that's the way I try to look at it. Yeah. You know, for me, it's not about virality. It's yeah. about creating things that mean something to people. Yes. And if it happens to grow, um, great. You know, yeah. build, build a business around it, if anything. Are you able to monetize it in some way? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. it's part of your professional career is doing this. Right now, it's become it. Yeah. Wow. It's become a part of my income stream. Yeah. Right now, that's big for me is yeah. like um, having multiple avenues to, to make money so yeah. that I can do the other stuff I want as well. I know that sounds cliche. No, of course, that's how I am. Um, but I really do try to see myself as a business, not a businessman, but as an artist, I am a business as a creator. I, you know, I am an entrepreneur, whether mm -hmm. I feel like an entrepreneur or not, I, I really am. So, you know, working with Preem and the team, Ian Schwartzman, yeah. um, management, Brady Watt, just those guys really inspiring me to put it out there. Let, people are going to like it. Put it out there. Don't be afraid to, to share and to grow and to build a fan base around something that's sincere and honest to you. It doesn't have to be teenagers dancing yeah. to, to popular songs. You know, right. there are niche audiences. And that's something I really feel with jazz, like jazz can use that. What's your feeling about the whole AI conversation as it may influence music moving forward and creativity? I try to have maybe a more collective approach. I know as an artist, um, I'm very much like, listen, we create. We don't need something to create for us. But something my manager said really stuck with me. It's just like... It's really up to the creatives to set the narrative sometimes. And if we stay away from something long enough, somebody mm. else will set that narrative for us. So when it comes to AI, it's unfortunate that this is where we're at, I think, and in one regard. But if we're more open to maybe what it can do in the positive and we get a hold of that, we can maybe set the narrative and, and not just let it become this parallel thing that ends up taking us over. Yeah. So it sounds like... To you, the success that you are pursuing is to be able to quietly put these sounds into mainstream music. Like that that's what you're after. Ideally. That's my utopia. Yeah. That's my utopia. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um but and, really the the maybe the physical reality of it it is that the the universe just kind of brought me into these spaces as well because I always loved hip hop. But also rappers in general, I feel are, are like today's Charlie Parker's and, and Dizzy Gillespie's like, why not make great music for them and get them in this? Once they're in the studio yeah. and you're making music with them, yeah, all bets are off. It's no longer jazz. It's no, nobody's there to stop creativity yeah. from happening. So for me, it's all about getting in the room and making something magical happen. I don't think I've achieved it yet, but that's the goal. That's the goal. Yeah. It reminds me of Casa Overall, Braxton Cook, people I've talked to that have said the same thing. If you want to hear some of the most creative solo voices today, listen to rappers. And Casa Overall said to me, if you want to hear the most interesting rhythmic phrasing, listen to Andre 3000. The, his phrasing is so much deeper than the majority of these saxophone players out here. Hands and it down. was like, whoa. 
I mean, originality is tough too. There's been yes. a lot of great saxophone players, and it's hard not to be derivative. Absolutely. And I think that's kind of where jazz is now too. Yeah. It's really hard to just be original. Um, so I feel like we're in this almost, uh, and I'll use an astrology term. Yeah. I feel like we're in this very Aquarian age where it's more about connecting all the dots. This is what I've been waiting for you to do is use a, an astro- astrological term in talking about music or anything else. Because I do wonder if eventually there is a space where it would be interesting to, or if you personally, maybe privately, think about music or your career or creative questions in astrological terms. I do, uh, more for, maybe from an esoteric yeah. perspective. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's into astrology who doesn't, I, I don't live and die by it. I'm not somebody who's like acting based on where the planets are. Like you, you know? didn't ask me my sign when we sat down and that would would that have affected anything what if i knew your sign, yeah or that kind of thing i mean is that something no you're interested? i mean no in the way we interact no no not at all not at all it's not like that i mean it could be an interesting thing to dive into you know i can try to observe you and figure you out like i get scorpio sagittarius vibes right away you know and just is that right you get scorpio sagittarius vibes absolutely i am basically on the cusp between scorpio and sagittarius beautiful there you go you see that's unbelievable man yeah (laughs) i am honestly floored i mean i've because i've never gone near it before but i know that there's substance happening but i don't argue with people who don't you know like i believe in god too i don't argue with um atheists or agnostics like i I believe that's all part of the spec so i'm not one of those guys who pushes it or who asks everybody what their sign is yeah and i'm a married man maybe if i was single i would use it to try to. well that was always a thing right that was like a pickup thing yeah what's your sign baby you know all that no no for me it's, it's so much more um it might sound cliche but i've always been on a quest for truth yeah and um, whether it's theology, um, uh, the occult, or, yeah, or music, uh-huh. I'm always looking for that. And astrology was just one of those things that always resonated with yeah. me. Um, it's, it's so ancient that I felt like I had to dive in and tap yeah. in. But as far as it relates to music, you know, I, I could definitely, you know, sometimes I'll listen to an artist for a while, then look up their chart, and, <laughs> and, you know, do the typical like, ah, that makes sense, perfect. But it's, I feel like I more learn. Yeah. It's more for my own understanding of yes. the world and less to try to preach to anybody, to anybody else. else, even though my TikTok is me talking to an audience. And, you know, well, so. I, but I love it. I mean, that, that's yeah. perfect. You know, the idea that you're you were compelled by the sort of ancient aspect of it and you mm-hmm. are communicating about it in the most modern way possible. Carlos, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and to, to get to know more about you. And I, I have become uh, fascinated by your whole worldview in the last 24 hours. <laughs> Thank you, man. I, I'm, I'm thrilled, man. It's a real honor to meet you. Like I said, I've been a fan and, and I love the work you're doing. And it's, it's probably more of a pleasure for me to talk to you than, than it is the other way around. Please welcome Julius Rodriguez. Because we have a very short set, I'm going to do my best to make it up to you. And uh, invite to the stage a dear friend. Please welcome Miss Samara Joy. On a rainy night at the festival, the 24-year-old multi-instrumentalist Julius Rodriguez waited for the storm to clear before he took the stage for a shortened set. Almost immediately, like on the second song, he invited his friend Samara Joy to sing with him. And I talked to him briefly when it was over about the struggles of being a first-time band leader on the road. All right, Julius, let's talk about let's talk about what just happened in this tent here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> this is one of those things that you come all the way to Montreal to do your thing, play in this tent, show these people your music, and it was looking like for a minute like it might not happen at all. Yeah. 
like you said, it's not something you can really control. Um, you can just be grateful for the opportunity to have come at all and, you know, wait it out. What happens will happen. You can't really do anything about it, but have a positive attitude. Yeah, we got here and they said, it's raining. It's not safe to be on stage. Uh, hold tight and we'll let you know what's happening. And then it started pouring. And we were just like, oh, I guess this is just not happening. So when it started to lighten up, they said, okay, you're cool to go to stage. We can do a short set. So then I did, and then uh, it's backstage, and my friend Samara Joy came by. I said, I want to come say hi, and so I asked her to come perform, and so I hope that made up for the shortened set, having Samara come and I, for one, was absolutely delighted. I think the audience was also. And she told me that the song that you did together on stage was also recorded on your record. Yeah, In Heaven. So a song originally recorded by Gregory Porter, but we did our own version for the album. Yeah, we don't get to perform it much, so I'm always glad when we do. You alluded to the fact that this has been a chaotic week. Yes, we started our tour on Monday at the Blue Note, and we're out until July 23rd. We do the East Coast, we're here in Canada, and then we go to Europe for two weeks, just about. And forgive me for asking this, but have you done this kind of tour before? Um, with other artists, yes, but not as a leader myself. How does it change being the leader from being a sideman or a collaborator? Well, your name is on everything, so it's like, as a Virgo, I'm a perfectionist, so I need to like make sure everything is right. And it never is, but you know, you can always try. So I'm just like got my hand in a million different things trying to make sure this piece is happening the way it's supposed to be. This person has this flight to where they need to go. We have the right back, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm paying for it too. <laughs> how is How does it feel? Um, it's kind of rough. I'm hoping that things get better someday. But, you know, I love the music too much to, to even think about doing anything else. Is there any part of you that's thinking, man, I wish I was just playing in somebody else's gig right now? Yes, it would be easier to do that, it would be more comfortable, but I've yeah. never been about being comfortable. I've always wanted to challenge myself and, you know, just aim higher. So that's why I'm sticking this out because, you know, putting the work now and hopefully it'll pay off later on. I think it is really cool to be talking to you right now on your first tour in the midst of this chaos because I really feel confident that it won't be more than a matter of a year or two when we talk and the conditions will be much different for you. Hope so, man. I hope so. <laughs> Julius Rodriguez, thanks, man. Awesome. Thank you. Some musicians choose to tour alone and pick up local bands everywhere they go. Trumpeter and singer Benny Benack III played one night at the Montreal Jazz Club Upstairs Jazz. He was promoting his new album, Third Time's a Charm, joined by a local rhythm section. It's something that he does often and proudly pick up musicians on the road. We first spoke for this podcast in January of 2022, and we caught up in front of his hotel right before his gig in Montreal. Since I last talked to you, I think you have started to explore touring outside of the country more. Yeah, I mean, you know, I kind of have embraced, like I am tonight at the festival, while I have a lot of friends here, I'm playing with an all-Montreal rhythm section, yeah. and I've kind of really embraced the, like, Sonny Stitt model of, like, jazz cat rolls into town solo, picks up a rhythm section, and the beautiful thing is, anywhere you are in the world the level is so high, you know? So whether I'm in Montreal, I was in Des Moines last night, I'll be in Paris tomorrow, and I'm playing with locals everywhere I go, and everybody's great. So I never have a bad band anywhere in the world. It's it's awesome. We talked about that when I first talked to you about it yeah. because I was always impressed that that is your MO, you know? And I talked to Julius Rodriguez last night who was frustrated by all of the challenges of trying to lead a band and take them on the road, and... You know, there are some, and I said to him, well, there are some real economic advantages to picking up a band on the other side of the Atlantic. 
And he said, I've come too far with this project to do that. And part of it may be a function of, even though you're from the same tribe, of the kind of repertoire that you're playing. Totally. I mean, I think it's absolutely a, a product of that. And that's a conversation that I had, you know, one of my contemporaries that I know you've also spoken with that kind of I look up to a lot because yeah. he was sort of the first cat of my tribe, as you put it, yeah. to kind of get out there and barnstorm was yeah. Emmett Cohen. Yeah. And Emmett has always had his band, yeah. his trio. You know, he never had a desire of rolling into town by himself and finding a bass drummer and and. The reason for that is, like you said, his product is predicated on yeah. these magical arrangements that yeah. no one's looking at music. Everyone has the same 40 tunes arranged. They can go to any of them in any order. And I sympathize with the cats that their band is integral yeah. to what they do. And to your point, you know, my music is much more like you can throw it in front of these cats for an hour at soundcheck and everybody pretty much gets yeah. it. And I can say this tune kind of is like a Coltrane quartet yeah. vibe. Okay, this one's kind of like a Louis Armstrong vibe. This is the Dizzy vibe. This one's kind of a Sinatra thing. And because, like I said, these musicians everywhere, everyone is so studied, you can just kind of give them yeah. those musical directions and, and people can pick it up really fast. So I sort of have catered my music to work yeah. you know, with pickup cats and... And I certainly, you know, I admire the guys that are adamant about this yeah. is my band, this is the sound. I'm not going to compromise that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really comes down to, like you said, a matter of economics. You mentioned Sonny Stitt. I can think of people that I played with in my life. Richie Cole was one who yeah, went all over the world picking up course. rhythm sections. He ended up in Pittsburgh, actually. That's right. So you, I'm sure you, you know how the story ends. Of course. You know, I, I did a few of those gigs when I was coming up, and I also saw my dad do a lot of that. Of course, of yeah. And I think maybe it's something that can apply to trumpet players or saxophone players, but certainly to singers. At the end of the day, you know that you are the product. You are the show. You know, the band has to support you. The band, you want to play with great musicians, but at the end of the day, what the audience is going to take home with them is the experience that they had with you. That's true, but you know, it's funny... I got this comment a lot after I, I did the album release yeah. at Lincoln Center last week, and everybody that played on the record was there. So it was like Peter Bernstein, Bria Gomberg showed up, Emmett and his trio were the, the rhythm section. I had my dad was in yeah. town playing sax. Yeah, so many cats, yeah. and it just seemed so natural to me. It's like, oh, Emmett's trio happens to be the bass, piano, and drums. They should play a trio tune. Oh, hey, Mike is an incredible singer who does a duet with me. Why don't I have Mike sing a ballad? And a couple people were like, wow, that was kind of a, an interesting album release. Mm. It was like you were kind of like hosting a party, you know, like everyone else was kind of featured as much as you. And I've got that comment with a lot of local rhythm sections that I play with people in the audience say, we you were so generous featuring the other musicians. It was so gracious the way you shared the stage. And to me, you know, that's not even like a conscious, I'm not thinking like, oh, let me make sure that everyone on the band gets to eat. It's just like, that's just second nature to yeah. what the music is about. So for me, I feel like it makes the show better when there's a big drum solo or when the piano player gets a mo you know it's like too much of one thing if everybody's just getting me drilled over their head for 75 minutes it's like as great as any one person can be i think it's more interesting it makes my act better yeah when you kind of pass the ball yeah you, know? totally. and you have an assist in there you're not just shooting 40 times yeah. you know even if you score 50 points it's like a more beautiful game Sorry for the extended basketball reference, but, you know, it's more fun to watch when everyone's touching the ball. You yes. Know? Speaking of touching the ball, you are wearing 
a, a well-fitting suit right now. <laughs> but you appreciate a good-looking suit, a nice pair of shoes. This is part of your vibe. Yeah, well, I think it just comes down to, you know, we mentioned Julius Rodriguez, yeah. and I know, like, some of his contemporaries. Yeah. But I, you can you can go on and see a Facebook rant, and, you know, Joel Ross is, is you know, yelling and having an argument or a discussion. I was a spirited debate yeah. with an older musician who's like, everybody should be respecting the yeah. music wearing suits and ties. And then you have... Younger cats that are like, well, you know, screw that. Like, I want to wear a T-shirt. And I yeah. really think it just comes down to what your music is trying to convey, what yeah. your brand is. And for me, you know, I'm leaning into this notion of, like, the singer, yeah. the crooner. Nobody ever saw Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra yeah. wearing, like, jeans, yeah. you know. And just for my brand, I feel like th it makes sense, you know. And I feel like I'm going to sell more CDs yeah. if I look like I do on the cover than if I show up. But... For other artists, what their music is, what culture their music yeah. is a part of, it, it doesn't make sense for everyone, but certainly for what I'm doing. Do you feel yourself transform in some way when you put the suit on? Do you feel like, okay, now I'm becoming... Benny Benack yeah, it's third, kind of like, know? of course, we've said it's like the Superman, you know, yeah. Clark Kent dons the cape. Yeah. It's like my superpowers are when I've got the pocket square and the tie clip, yeah. and the whiskey in hand, you know, and then I'm just a mere mortal the rest of the day when yeah. I'm in basketball shorts. There's yeah. definitely an element of that. And, you know, that's the old adage, look good, feel good, yeah. play good. So it's like putting on a suit. It's like a ritual. It's like, OK, now I am in costume. It's like, let's. Let's have a coffee before the show. Like, let's get revved up. Yes. You know, it's like getting dressed before the gig is like sort of where you start to ramp things up for the night. There was like a video that went around not long ago on yeah. social media. It yeah. was Winton. It was Winton like in the 90s. Yeah. Ironing, you know, backstage, yeah. ironing a suit. And it was exactly that sentiment. It's the idea of like, you know, these people work hard all week. Yeah. They're spending their money that they could be spending anything else. Yeah. I'm going to make them feel like I'm appreciating their right. contributions, you know. Yeah. So there's an element of that, too, you know. So let's talk about the new record. I need you to tell me about it. Well, it's, uh, like I mentioned, the gig, the release show at Lincoln Center, it ended up being almost like a, a variety show of sorts because, A, I had all this time on my hands like we all did. Yeah. There's 14 tracks. Yeah. So it's a meaty yeah. record, 14 yeah. tracks. But there's a lot of special guests. We went into the studio, and it didn't feel like 14 tracks, yeah. and it didn't feel like a record date. It felt like we were hanging out at a jam session, you know, and that's the energy that I wanted to try and convey is have that feeling when you listen to some records it feels like you're in the room it feels yeah. like it's a live breathing organism and it's not just like a stale thing so that's what we were going for and much like my other two records in general you come to see me play there's it's a it's a smorgasbord yeah. you know new tunes yeah original yeah a bunch tunes? of new original tunes and then you know, the next tune is a Tom Jones cover, yeah. and the next tune is Louis Armstrong, and the next tune is, like, far out, stretching. Yeah. So it's very cliche to do the whole uh, one foot firmly in the past mm. and one foot firmly in the future. But, that it, you know, I think it's all a part of the, the story of the music. At this point, it's almost silly to even have to talk about questions of genre right. like that. But and yet here we you know we, we do we have to as you say you have to say well it's one one foot in the, in the <laughs> right, future right, right. and one in the past no it's true you hear these old adages about old cats where it was like well we had five records so yeah. I learned every single note off of Oscar Peterson trio plus one Clark Terry of everybody's solo because I listened to that record ten million times yeah. because I didn't have YouTube yeah and so there's value to be gained from that yeah and then the other side of the coin is yeah you have the, these young kids that show up at the sessions that I host in yeah. New York and it's like. They're all over the map. It's yeah. like they're just as likely to play a tune by Kamasi Washington as they are really? by, you know, Earl Father Hines. It's crazy, and it's inspiring, I think. People are really becoming learned in, in the, whole, the whole spectrum of the music. 
I love that you are both so deeply entrenched in the New York scene and so aware of your community, or as we've been referring to it as the sort of the tribe. And on the other hand, that you're expansive in your view of it by working with people wherever you go. Like, who, who are the cats that you're working with here? So tonight uh, is a great pianist, Tori Butler, who actually has worked with a lot of singers yep. ar around here. So he's very well versed in that yeah. world. And it's kind of his trio. So they're a yeah. package deal. Yeah. Nice. And we just did our sound check. These guys, yeah. like, they did the extra credit. They did yeah. the homework. They're like, well, you know, the chart on yeah. bar 37, they go to E major. But on your record, they actually do B flat 7. Which do you want? And I'm like, oh, wow, you guys... This is going to be fun yeah, tonight, yeah. you know? It's like it's not always that uh, streamlined, yeah. but it, it's fun. You know, I think it always, going back to what we were talking about with, with having your band on the road, yeah. there's always another level of that magic yeah. where you have the ESP, you know what the other guy's going to do, everyone knows the music, you're not in the charts, yeah. you know? And that is, of course, that's your guys is always going to be yeah. the absolute apex, but... I also have been saying, as I've been talking to now younger cats yeah. that are saying to me, how do I get on on the road? And I'm yeah. like, well, it's one thing as a great bass player to sound amazing yeah. with a great drummer. Yeah. But like the best bass players, they can make a sh sh crappy, sorry, a crappy yeah. drummer yeah. still, you know, the tune's not going to drag. And yeah. that really is like a different muscle. When, yeah. you, when you have strength, your concept is so strong and your musicality is so strong, you can kind of go into, you know, an adverse situation yeah. where the band doesn't know the music or they're you know you're not in a yeah. jazz town where yeah. there's six great bass players and you can still put on a great show and yeah. everyone in the audience is none the wiser yeah you're gonna feel like you had to do, do a, a little, little more, more the work. heavy lifting that night but at the end of the day no one in the audience you're still gonna get invited back no yeah. one in the audience wants their money back they're still buying a cd so that's almost like a different muscle that that is very valuable skill if you can you know, like I said, kind of be strong enough in your own thing yeah. that regardless of who you're playing with, you're still going to have the music on that level. I think in a way there's a kind of a question about what the job is. It's just an interesting thing. Like, as you say, if I walk out of a gig, people had a good time and I get asked back, let's call that a success. That's a win, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fool them again, yeah. you know. Yep. But, I mean, the other thing is... You know, I'm sitting here in my linen pink suit, yeah. you know, like uh, if I wanted to do these tours and bring a band and yeah. spend all the money on flights and hotels, yeah. I could break even or yeah. like do a tour for two weeks right. and lose $200. But you'd certainly be wearing more polyester. Yeah, and exactly. You know, and New York ain't cheap. So <laughs> that is a factor, too. And you, I remember hearing about like if you go out on tour with your band and you break even, that's yeah. a win. Yeah. And I'm like, man, it's like. It's so exhausting. You know, you're out there. It's like you haven't slept for two weeks. Like you're working your butt off. Yeah. You're hungry. You're tired. You want to feel like you're coming home with yeah. like something to show for it. Yeah. So maybe that's, you know, I know cats. I've been on tours yeah. where the band leader says, listen, the bread's going to be this. Yeah. But this is the band. Are yeah. we down? And I am down for the cause yeah. when that's the case. But for me, it's like, well, yeah, but also like. Mm -hmm. I like to buy a lot of suits, so yeah. I'm not, I don't want to break even here, folks. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's have a little something for the cab fare home. You well, know? considering that you haven't slept in weeks, that you got to <laughs> go play a gig and yeah. that you're out here, thank you for taking time with me, of Benny Of course, Benack, man. It's third. always great to talk to you. I'm glad that we got a chance to catch up, and uh, we're going to have fun tonight, that's for sure. When I was appointed UNESCO Goodwill Ambassador, I realized that if I hadn't had that epiphany 50 years ago, I would have probably said, I don't know how to be a Goodwill Ambassador. I wouldn't know what to do and I probably would have turned it down.
When it was offered to me, I was flattered, but I knew I had to do some things to serve that position. So what I started with when I actually was appointed and I had to give a little speech, I said that jazz is a music that started in America, but it has evolved to being all over the world. When I was young, the best musicians were the ones from America. In general. I mean. There were some great ones from Canada too. I wouldn't be here on stage if it wasn't for Oscar Peterson. He's from this neighborhood of Little Burgundy, right? During the First World War, jazz was brought to Europe. And now it's all over the place. Every country has jazz musicians and they're amazing. So with UNESCO, when I gave my speech, I said I think it's time for America to deem jazz an international music and that it belongs to the world. So we created International Jazz Day, and I never knew that it was going to turn out to be as big as it is. It's huge. It's always on April 30th. The last time it began with a big band from China and it was swinging. We've had it in Russia, and we've combined musicians from different countries. It always has this feeling of the kind of world that you really want this to be, where everybody is living together in harmony. The Montreal Jazz Festival was started in 1980 by Alain Simard in association with André Menard. I met André briefly this year, and he is a total character. I got the sense of what these guys must have been like back in the day. They were people who were not necessarily breaking the rules so much as they were making them up as they went along. Ultimately, I think anybody crazy enough to devote their life to creating a jazz festival has to be pretty special. And amazingly, all over the world, there are people who were motivated to do just that. The music didn't only call musicians to it, it called all kinds of people to it, presenters, journalists, fans. Jazz has been a beacon all over the world at the Montreal Jazz Festival. As the years passed, the programming has changed hands. It's been in the hands of various individuals and committees. The organization grew and became more corporate and more formalized. But at the center of it is always somebody who oversees it, and that person can have a profound impact on the flavor of the festival. Laurent Aximary is the new director of programming as of this year, and I spoke to him about his particular flavor preferences. I don't want to have only American musicians coming to the festival. That would be easy, you know, just to bring American people because it's so close, you know, and it's cheaper and, I mean, you know, bringing those people here. We, we, we love to discover talents from everywhere, and it's, it's been super important forever, and we're keeping that, that, that thing, bringing South Korean musicians, bringing Australian musicians, bringing... South African musicians, French musicians, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's how jazz is today. Because, you know, as Herbie said, and his, his idea of jazz spreading everywhere, it's like, it's worldwide for sure. Everybody's learning jazz somewhere, you know, in, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in Europe, it's, it's everywhere. So it's important for us. And... We have those local musicians who are, you know, getting all those influences from Europe and also from, from North America. And it makes it, you know, like a, probably a special, do, do we have like a special aest- uh, jazz aesthetic? aesthetic? I'm, I'm not sure we do have that, but I feel that there's like a, some, of, some of it is very Euro- European yeah. in this jazz. You know, it's, it's like... I feel that there's like uh, some of some of it is you know, it. I feel some UK aspect. Yes, putting a festival together like this takes a long time. Is the week of the festival the busiest week of your year or the easiest week of your year? It's the most exciting yeah. week of the year. 
that's the thing you know it's like you you you, you, you we're getting the, the fruits from the from the tree you know yeah. going from a stage or a, a, a venue to another one yeah. saying hi to the team saying hi to the artist yeah. and checking that music that we know that we've seen in other festivals during yeah. the year or we've seen in showcases and we're just you know getting that and it's it's an incredible week yes it's tiring but we don't feel it necessarily i went to bed at four yesterday and i'm feeling i'm f i feel like i'm going to do the same tonight what were you doing until four in the morning last night yeah talking uh dancing too Uh, I've been dancing yeah. until three in the morning, yeah. and I get myself something to eat before going back to yeah. back home. And What did you get to eat before going back home? <laughs> a shawarma. A shawarma. <laughs> yeah, the best one in town. Is it nearby? <laughs> yeah, it's close to Emtalis. Okay, good. I love that place. You should try it. Okay, I will. They take the pita and they make the sandwich and they grill it, and yeah. it's absolutely amazing. Okay, I love it. I like that it's not poutine that you got. It's the sh it's the shawarma. Nah, it, uh, well, yeah. I like poutine. I love poutine, you but I poutine. love cooking the poutine. Ah, I would like to try that because I think it's always better in somebody's house than it is on the street. You know? Uh, yeah, it's it, the the choice of potato is extremely important, uh -huh. and I think that all those you know joints they tend to to take the wrong potato. You don't take like a um, um, a yellow potato. You you take like a a french fry uh -huh. kind of potato because you can make it crispy uh -huh. when you take the yellow potato yep. the taste is super interesting because yep. it's it's sugary a little bit yeah but it, it gets it gets uh mushy you know mm -hmm. and it, yes it loses uh, it, its crispiness it's structure it loses and some structure exactly so the the white potato or like a real yeah. french fries potato is, yeah. is a good one Well, this demonstrates that you have to be a person of a global aesthetic in order to work on a festival <laughs> like this. Not just musical, but in all things. On the morning of July 4th, pianist Emmett Cohen was in his hotel room repacking his suitcase. His flight to Portugal was leaving that evening. Outside, a thunderstorm was raging. Inside, he was eating a bagel that he had had delivered to his room. Emmett had spent a couple of days in Montreal the night before he played with his trio at the festival, and to say that the room was packed would be an understatement. Part of that is due to the fact that during COVID, Emmett became one of the most influential voices and faces in jazz, thanks in large part to his web series Live from Emmett's Place, which he filmed in his apartment in Harlem. We first spoke in the summer of 2022, and we caught up again this year at his hotel. We are talking, it's raining outside, but we're talking, it's the 4th of July. And we're in Montreal. You're headed to Europe tonight. You know, I heard Herbie Hancock give this little community lecture the other day, and he was proud to talk about how, as a UNESCO ambassador, he set up International Jazz Day, that he really has come to see in his own life and development that jazz was America's music. It was American music, he said. You know, there was a time when the best musicians really were American. And, uh, and he said, and now I feel like you can go anywhere in the world and find great jazz musicians. But also, so much of the, of the economy of jazz, the economics of jazz, takes place outside of the United States. And it's totally international at this point. I mean, people all in every corner of the world find the music. How do you feel about the idea of jazz being international music? I love it. I think that one of its main purposes is to break down borders and to show what kind of unity is possible. Yeah. And this is something that I say a lot, but one of my favorite experiences to have is uh, to go somewhere in the world where I can't speak to the 
people that I'm with, but once, once we start playing Jerome Kearns, All the Things You Are, we can suddenly communicate and come together in this way where we can't even have a conversation in, in English um, or, or their language, you know, Japanese or, uh, you know, especially Japan. That's a place where you can go and people know a lot about the music and, and that's the way you can communicate. And that for me is, is an amazing thing. And it's like a very cliche thing to say that it's a, it's a universal language. But then once you experience that, you're like, wow, this is, this is truly remarkable. And, um, you know, jazz is folk music. It comes from this country. It comes from the black American struggle and has developed in many ways over the past 100 years. But ultimately, it's folk music coming from struggle. Um, and I feel that every country has folk music that comes from a certain kind of struggle or a certain kind of indigenous atmosphere or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and, and I feel like when jazz meets those other folk cultures mm -hmm. um, is when it kind of can start to, to blossom in, in, these, in these different ways. And I think that's what Herbie's getting to in a, in a big way. It's like how can these musics come together and form something completely new but also completely worldly and just human uh, for me you know i have i haven't incorporated that many other styles of folk music yet jewish music yeah yeah i mean that's you know that's that's inside that's inside me and i grew up listening to that stuff and you know i think it's 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 an important part of my journey that i've discovered um you know all those melodies that i was singing growing up and hearing and um you know learning hebrew and learning the prayers and the the melismas and the improvisations and the um, and the Torah interpretations, you know, it's like we're interpreting ancient texts um, as musicians. And, and uh, mm. I, I find a lot of parallels between those things. That is an interesting point that I have in all of the discussion that is had around Jews and jazz. This is a very interesting idea that the sort of Talmudic aspect of Judaism, that constant interpretation and discussion and revisiting of the same text is not unlike the way we use the repertoire. And the constant discussion and reinterpretation of the repertoire is kind of Talmudic in its way. Yeah, I totally uh, connect with that, with that feeling. Yeah. And, you know, depending where, where you are in the world or how you've come up, you experience life in this different way. And especially within Judaism, there are so many different levels of of what of what that means um and i come from a reform a reform Jude, uh, Jude, judaism household where we didn't light the candles every friday night and what it meant to be jewish uh, was less related to religion itself but more to the community and to the traditional aspect of okay this is what our people have done for two thousand years plus and this is uh why it's important and this is why family is important and and we, you know that's the same way i look at at, at, the, at jazz it's like i'm not an orthodox jazz musician um, in any sense i do appreciate the tradition and we do love to swing um, which some people would call me old-fashioned for um, but we like to do it in our new way, and we like to interpret it in our new way, um, especially the music from the 1920s, teens, um, stride piano, stuff like that. Those are some things that I love to inter interpret in, in different kind of ways. Life is a first take. You know, you can't go back and do it again. And I feel like you are like a master of putting yourself in the line of fire, rolling, turning the red light on, and then taking your chances. Like, that's what you do with your show. I think that's why people enjoyed watching it because there were so many mistakes, there was so much risk, 
involved, um, especially down to the technology. Uh, you know, sometimes the stream just wouldn't work and like yeah. people would see us frustrated yeah. or see me frustrated on screen and then yeah. like wonder how I'm going to recover from that and still play. Yes. <laughs> I think that like, you know, it was a tremendous lesson for me just in terms of figuring out how to, to, to manage my expectations and yeah. how to, how to just do the best you know, I, I can in the moment and how to just discover that the music is really about recovering from mistakes um, and and creating special moments that might not happen anywhere else. And I think those two things are the most important part of, of how I see jazz music. Yeah, man. And the more you did that, the more rewarded you became for doing it. Your audience has only grown the more you've put yourself out there and shown the mistakes. Yeah, and also you figure out how to how to make them not sound like mistakes. You know, that's the, the big Miles Davis thing. It's like, uh, if you play a mistake, play it again. That's one way of handling a mistake. And then there's a, you know, a million other yeah. ways you can go. It really mirrors life in that, in that, in that same way. Well, that is exactly what I was going to ask you. Do you think in real terms, there's a way to take the teaching of jazz as you describe it and apply it to your everyday world? I think so. I think you really start to see, how the music can enrich people's lives. Yes. And when people go out to, to hear a great concert, especially an improvised concert, especially one that involves swing and blues, they come out of it healed. Yeah. And I think part of that healing has to, has to do with all the things that we're talking about. Affirmation that you don't have to be perfect in your everyday life. And yeah. nobody, nobody's perfect, even if that's expected of you. Yeah. Um, and it kind of gives you this permission <laughs> to then relax a little bit and just take things as, as they come. You know, as long as you're working hard and doing all the things you're supposed to do to just shed some of that anxiety about everyday life, you know. Has there been a part of you in your life that felt like, Excellence was expected of you, whether external or internal? I think classical music, playing classical music yeah. is really demanding in a different kind of way. It's yeah. like everyone knows this piece and everyone knows the notes that are supposed to be played. And if you don't play all those notes <laughs> specifically, uh, and that's the baseline, that's not even, that's before music is made. Yeah. That's like the notes are expected of you. And I thought that, I always felt like that was a lot of pressure to have to rehearse something so tirelessly yep. that you would come up there and just know all of the notes by heart. Yeah. And, you know, th I think that was kind of my, one of my forays into, into jazz was having experiences where I was able to take some liberties and not have to memorize and regurgitate every last thing, even though that's an, it, it, it helped me tremendously to be a, to be a jazz musician. Um, but it, I don't think it's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But yeah. now that I'm, I'm an improvising jazz musician, I'm like, all I want to do is go back and play Bach and work on it all day and try to get it exactly right. Dig it. You develop your concept with your band. But in your case also, your concept is sort of being developed with an audience. Like I went to go see you play last night. The line was around the block. As you have sort of developed your career, an audience has also kind of followed you. And I think this doesn't often happen with jazz artists, but it is happening with you. Feels involved in your success. Feels in some ways responsible for your success. Like every viewer of YouTube feels like they're one person that sort of helps propel you into the success that you're having now. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what community is really about. Yeah. The word that really sums up what the relationship is like is symbiotic. Yeah. So one of the most frequently said things to us now 
is, hey, you saved my life during the pandemic, or you really got me through, or yeah. I, I would have never found so much joy during that really hard yeah. time if it weren't for your shows to look uh, forward to each yeah. Monday. And, you know, when we were making those, we didn't think of it like... Saving you know, other people's yes, lives. Yes, we were just like, man, we just want to play. Yeah. And maybe, you know, people will join us and hang out. Yeah. But it, I didn't see it as, as, some, as a necessity like that. Yeah. And I think that it was a bit of a trauma bond in that time mm-hmm. where we were going live and yeah. um, inviting people into the living room and, and you know, and the, the spiel goes like it's yeah. a Harlem rent party. Yeah. 100 years later in the Roaring Twenties yeah. in the same location. Yes. You came by the house. I mean, yeah. that's the same. Billie Holiday lived on that street. Duke Ellington yeah. a few blocks up on Edgecombe Avenue. There were Harlem rent parties going on 100 years ago yeah. during Prohibition when you weren't allowed to gather and, yeah. and uh, have a drink. Combined with the mythology of of that, and uh, the fact that you know we were able to pivot in 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 a digital era, yeah, you know, into inviting people to to gather, even though they couldn't go out to a bar or something like yeah. that, it brought people together in a way where now when we come in person, <clears throat> people think that they know us, and we play into that. That's cool. I think some artists are more introverted and and can't really accept that from the public, um, but I try to to be there for everyone and look everyone in the eye. And if yes. it really made a difference in someone's life, then I really try to feel that and, and be grateful that, uh, that we were able to be a part of that and appreciate how much they've supported us in, in, in this time. I wonder about that, especially in this day and age where there is an expectation, or at least you're kind of rewarded for your willingness to step out, you know, publicly and in front, you know, if you think part of the job of being a musician, jazz or otherwise today involves the sort of extracurricular aspect of just knowing how to handle people and details. I like people. <laughs> and I think you have to you have to search inward. Yeah. You know, some people don't. They just have a social quota. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, they can only talk to so many people a day. Yes. And, um they can only give part of themselves. Yes. You know, in in, in certain times. Um but if someone takes the time to come out to to a show and and take a Friday night, yeah. um and spend whatever money they have yeah. on us. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel that the least I can do is stand in the CD line and say a quick hello or, or a picture if, yeah. if that's what completes the circle. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that's how people come back, you know, they, yeah. you, you, you want to meet them in person and, and let them know how grateful you are that they showed up to hear you. And, yeah. and you know, I played a lot of gigs for no people. <laughs> and there was, <clears throat> I remember the one turning point I, we had in, in Chicago, um, in one of our first tours, we had kind of like an anchor gig yeah. in Kalamazoo at the Gilmore Keyboard Festival, yeah. um, which was like the biggest gig I had had at, uh, up yeah. to that point. And we put a few other things around it. <clears throat> we played at this piano store in Chicago called Piano Forte. Uh, we did some publicity and I posted about it and told some friends and uh, we got there and there were six people there. And I was like, how is this going to be sustainable for us to tour when there's three people in the band and six people in the audience? And I think Russell Hall went out in the street and, and found a homeless person and brought them up and offered them, you know, see the concert. Wow. And it was just a, a very memorable thing. And that, that guy was soulful and enjoyed the music. And yeah. It was like, you know, from there, how do we make the music accessible to everyone? Yes. And then also, how how do we start to develop an audience so that each time we come back some somewhere, then more people will show up? Yes. That got me started on a on, on two paths. One spiritual, like how do we make the music accessible for everyone? Yeah. And then one 
more practical. How do you how do you fill a room with, with audience? You know, it's impossible to be something for for everyone. Yeah, I've realized you can't try to try to please everyone. You can't try to be there for everyone. But what you can do is be your most honest self and hope that people connect with that. Yes, and that journey has has taught me to trust myself and to trust the, the the musicians around me. And if we play together and we play from our hearts and we play uh, something that's good intentioned and play something that's historically accurate yes. uh, and play something that's risky and sexy and romantic yeah. um, and incorp- start incorporating you know all sides of the music, then, yes. then, then we can start to build an, an audience and make it about the community. Yes. And that's kind of exactly what started to happen once we took to the internet. You are a forward-looking guy. Last year when we talked, you were interested in NFTs, crypto. You also you know, have embraced streaming, and nobody can argue that you're a product of your own generation. Have you been thinking about AI and chat GPT and maybe some of the implications that it could have for creativity moving forward, for better or for worse? Is it on your mind at all? I think that it's up there with crypto and yeah. NFTs yeah. and kind of this new technology and this new world that we're seeing. So I just try to stay current. You know, chat GPT is a game changer on many levels. And, you know, sometimes we use it to help with grants now. And sometimes we use it to help with uh, newsletters and and editing things. And, you know, it's just a tool to help us with productivity and to help us live the way we ultimately want to live. Uh, But I don't think that AI is going to really take over people coming together in a room and listening to music. I think we're we, we might be safe on that on that front. And I think with all the technology, technological advances, I think people will also rebel against the technology. You know, the more uh, streaming accessibility that we have, the more people want to just sit back and listen to vinyl. And I think that will always there will always be kind of this this yeah. this dichotomy with the with the old and the, and the new. Yeah. And, you know, incorporating it however it needs to be incorporated. I'm, I'm fairly open minded about all that stuff. But. You know, when it comes time to just sitting with me and the piano, I'm, you know, turn out, tune out all the other, uh, all the other noise and electronics yeah. and all that stuff. But um, I think, you know, it's it's too it's too large to ignore at this point. So it's it's good to to learn about it. Emmy Cohen, thank you so much, man. Let's uh, make this a yearly event. Leo, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on, and I'm a big fan. <laughs> and I hope to see you soon. Yeah, me too. I'm a big fan too. I'll see you soon. Thanks, man. Backstage, we were talking about AI. That's a big thing. It's change. It's going to change everything. And we have to make sure it changes everything for the better. AI was created by human beings. But the closer artificial intelligence gets to being human-like, the more we have the great responsibility to perhaps look at this thing that we created the way a woman thinks about her child. Because that's our baby. So we have the responsibility. It's beyond its infancy now and it's working towards its kind of teenage years. A lot of people want to throw it out because it could be very, very dangerous, but that would be like throwing the baby out with a bathwater. So it's our responsibility to teach ethics and humanitarian values to AI. But there's a problem. You know who are the worst examples of the humanitarian spirit and humanitarian values? Human beings. We're terrible. We kill each other. How insane is that? We're actually killing our own species. And we're gonna blame global warming? We already started killing each other millennia ago. Makes no sense at all. Singer Stacy Kent and her husband and creative partner, saxophonist Jim Tomlinson, have been touring constantly since 2021. I spoke to them backstage in London in the spring of 2022 and caught up with them again this year backstage in Montreal. 
It was both an auspicious and bittersweet time to catch them because it happened to be the last night of their seemingly endless tour. Stacy, I just found you in the hallway just going through all of the logistical, merchandising, strategic questions of performing that I think when the average listener of your music thinks about what your uh, romantic life is like, they may not take these kinds of factors into consideration. There was the wardrobe mistress, and we were talking about the ironing. There's the logistics about what time and on stage and off stage, and the merchandise and the leaflets and the laminates. And uh, before you know it, it's um, a good half hour of your time before the gig, after the sound check, where you're just doing admin. I mean, I can't help but think of the idea of the desire to get back out on the road and go traveling again, how much we were hungry for it. And even a year and a half ago, not even a year ago when we spoke, there was this sense of the world reopening. But the world is really open now. So I guess the question is, do you still crave travel in the way that you did in the isolation of COVID? We are dying to go home. <laughs> that was a pretty quick answer. So here's, here's the reality. We were dying to get out. We were longing to get out. We were all just choking for it, like you said. And that sentiment of the feeling of being on stage and sharing with people and that sense of humanity has not disappeared or dissipated mm -hmm. at all. But what has really become very prominent is the desire to return home because we've been on the road so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, everybody's story is different. Everybody's diary is different. We started out after covid in September 22, and we more or less, we won, mm. and we more or less haven't stopped. We had tiny breaks here and there, but we haven't had a proper stretch at all at home since then. I don't really know why, but it's been an absolute frenzy, and you're catching us on our last gig of the season. So we have really been on the road straight since Feb on this run. So we had that kind of Christmas break, right? Did a tiny bit because we had two dates that were makeup dates in January. Remember that? But then basically it was Feb to now. Boom, 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 boom. And so our bodies are going, please go home. Mm -hmm. Please be done. Um, because spirits are high and we're good and we're still in good form too. Like I could stand here and do a jig for you. But yeah. there are parts <laughs> of the body that just hurt from yes. too much travel. So my neck is begging me to go home. Mm -hmm and um, that kind of thing. So we need to recharge the batteries. But I do want to say that to finish this answer, that sentiment, which was so beautiful, I think that that will last for a very long time, that lingering sense that just we're back out. It, it hasn't left yet, yes. has it? But now it's time to pause and yeah. we leave after tonight. So we're just elated this evening because, I mean, I have to say we had a really long sound check and we had a long sound check just because you could tell the three of us, we were just dying to play Yeah. because we're very aware the sense of, oh, this is it until October. Yes. And so it was like we wanted to do two gigs. Right. So it was a really fun sound check tonight. A private gig for yourselves and then the public exactly. gig that the audience gets And then to the see. gig and then it'll just be over yeah. and we'll go, oh. I mean, but going home is glorious. Yes. And we see friends and we see family and we have movie night and, you know, and then we get to go to work too because we haven't really gotten our teeth into, we have an album to put out. So there's all the admin to do, right? Uh, Summer Me, Winter Me comes out in October. So there's all the like, all that stuff you were talking about in the yes. hallway, the photos, the talking to the label, the cover, sure, the checking of the text to make sure there are no 
you know, spelling yes. errors in your album. Um, that and then the music that we want to get on with because we haven't really dug into. So have you been performing any of the new material f- from the forthcoming album yes. on this tour? Yes, we've been dropping it in. Not too much, but sort of dropping it in. Um, and we've also been dropping in material that's not on the new album, but will be on the following album. And that was because of the COVID yeah. period. So there was a real kind of pile up of things that we worked on. Yeah. I mean, I'm literally thinking of a traffic pile. Yeah. And so there are songs that we're not really ready to present yet, but we want to play them. Well, that's what I'm thinking. You know, when you talk about this amount of touring, you know, the question is, how do you return to the same material over and over for 18 months or 24 months? And it sounds like one of your solutions is you don't. You you diversify it. You br- break it up a little bit. Well, there are two answers to that. Because we don't, because we do drop in the new songs. But the real answer is, all of us are different. And some people need to play new things every night. And some people can stay on the same thing for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in terms of painters as well, you know, do you, do you go out and roam the world or you do paint or do you paint the same tree? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I am very good at, and so is Jim and we really have this in common. We don't ever tire of the material. What can I say? I don't know why. It just feels like it's what we want to play. I don't think, oh, I got to sing that tonight. Never. I feel great. If I'm in love with a song, yeah. I'm in love with a song and if you ask me to play, you know, Stardust 87,000 more times in my lifetime, I'd say, sure. Yeah. So we don't have that problem. Um, so it's, I think it's more that we're excited about the new stuff and so we want to play it. Yeah. Then we're feeling weary about the older stuff because there are still songs that we recorded a long time ago that I have to have in the repertoire. I will just simply play them every night and I go, oh, it's time for Tango and Macau. Right? I mean, I don't think we've ever missed a tango on this entire tour. So things rotate, right? I'm sure you you have the same thing. You get a kind of skeleton set. Mm-hmm. You know, the bones of the set, and then you flesh it out with whatever you kind of feel like on the day. But it's it's so much about just the pleasure of sharing songs. That's another reason why it doesn't get... It doesn't feel tired or anything because a good song is a good song. And uh, you're sharing it with a new audience every night. So, you know, it's new for them. And, you know, it feels so it feels new to you. But I wanted to jump in there just because I wanted to say, apropos what you said about um, new audience, we met up with some of the people who have been following us around on this tour. And they've seen the show many times. And they've said, these are mostly the people who follow us on Patreon because the Patreon is more like a more personal fan club. And so we've seen some of these folks in California mm. and London and Asia, right? Wow. And they've said, following us around, that even though they've been on this tour, it felt different every time. And I guess that's because the, they heard the same songs a lot of the time, but the skeleton was there and then the other stuff changed. But the atmosphere changes too. Yes. Um, so there's just the delight in sticking to a repertoire and really digging into it. After hearing you say in the hallway as I walked up, I've played here so many times before, I'm sure it's the same merch table that we've sat at before, the same table to greet people, that you are as loyal to certain places as you are to the repertoire, that you have developed over the years some places that become kind of like home to you. So 
it's not necessarily always a new audience. It seems like maybe you're returning to these audiences over time, even if they're not following you around, you kind of return to them. Absolutely. And one of the things that becomes a conflict is Mm. people are very resourceful and they come and they find us on social media and they say, I mean, I got a lot of requests for tonight, Mm. a lot. I don't know what the number is, but a lot of them are just are not in the repertoire tonight because I have played those songs to them and I want to introduce them to some of the new songs, songs that we have recorded. I want to introduce that to them. And I will often say in the show, I know you guys have written me a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to try and do as many as I can, but I also hope that I get the balance right and that you fall in love with the new songs. Yes. So I say it with a kind of a, I don't always say that, there's not like a patter, but there's kind of a deference to them to say, I know that you've asked me for these things yes. and I do want to satisfy those yes. and I want to balance it because you are going to be knocked out by this song. You seem to have a very direct relationship through social media and through your Patreon with your fans. It's a very fine line in terms of how much you let them in and how much you keep them at bay, what you share and what you choose not to share. Is it challenging? Is it something that you have to kind of check in with each other about balancing? This is a fascinating topic because it's something that we haven't really discussed out there because it's so new. So on Facebook and Instagram, it's just I'm I'm all one way. I don't really react. Yeah. I read everything and I like everything, mm-hmm. but I don't talk. I say, here's where we are, or I photograph this bird, or Jim photographed this bird, whatever we do. We are very personal people, but we're in and out. Patreon came along because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We started it, like I'm sure so many people did, during COVID, and people signed up, and they subscribe. Um, You know, it's not very much, but they subscribe for a year, and and each month they, they get whatever's going on. Sometimes it's Zoom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's songs that Jim and I record at home that are only found there. So we try and keep it exclusive. Sometimes we'll actually record something from the show or a sound check mm-hmm. and we'll give it to them. Sometimes we have practiced and rehearsed so they hear the raw stuff, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I've, I've sung things for them that are so not ready to go out. And it's funny because I couldn't have predicted that. We did it because it felt like the right thing to do when we were all locked away from each other. I couldn't have predicted how long it would run. There were a ton of people on the page to begin with because we were locked up. Then a lot of people left because they see us live. They're still fans, but they don't want to do that. And that's fair enough. I still see them on the social media. Mm -hmm. But the people who've stayed are very loyal and it is like a community. These are the ones who come and they check us out at all these different gigs. They do know more. That is a very personal fan club. They do know more because we come home from a tour and we talk to them on zoom Mm -hmm. and so we'll have 40 minutes with them where we just shoot the breeze and we tell them about the tour and we give them a little bit more of the behind the scenes stuff sure we let them ask whatever they want and sometimes they ask questions you know because they they want to get it yeah and they're interested they ask really great questions and so we tell them the line is i suppose where sometimes people have said will you come over can Uh you you're in our town will you come over and you know they're delightful. It's not like these are people, of course, you could be friends with, yes. but it doesn't work that way because not that you wouldn't yes. fall in love and become friends. Sure. You could do. But normally when we get into a town, if we're in Des Moines for a night or we're in Copenhagen for a night, mm-hmm. that's not the kind of thing that goes on. Yes. And we don't. But people do ask. Sure. Have you given any thought to the conversation around artificial intelligence and how it may impact creativity moving forward? Or have you been following this conversation at all? If AI takes over the world, what they do to music is the least of our problems. Right. I'm worried about 
so many more things in the world with regards than this. You know, I don't mean to be glib about it, but I haven't worried about your career so much career, except for when we hadn't thought about doing anything. We record and obviously we have technology that we didn't used to have. If I want to retake something or we want to redo something, we can do it. We're not there literally with the razor. Yes. You see what I'm saying? No, of course. I mean, technology has been evolving you know, since the dawn of recorded music and before that with sheet music, every instrument is a piece of technology on some level. Absolutely. And when, when recorded music came along, it created anxiety about musicians becoming redundant. The fact of the matter is that every advance in musical technology thus far, and that's, you know, the, the past is not necessarily a reliable guide to the future, but Every piece of technology has basically enhanced musicians to be more productive and do more interesting things. People will argue, and probably correctly, that no one was more creative or productive than Bach. But certainly, you know, it takes me much less time now to edit an album and do things that, you know, than it did five years ago because the technology advances. Yes. And so that means I can do other things. One of the things that we're mostly anxious about is that AI will be able to replicate what it is that humans do. Yes. And you can see that doing AI doing that in basically the sort of the essential pleasures. Yes. Such as music and sex. Yeah, right? right, right. And, you know, virtual reality. But the fact is that it's still trying to replicate something which is essentially human. That's right. Eventually, it will find that boring and and start doing other things and leave humans to leave get us, on. Leave us alone. To get on with what we do. Well, I will leave you to get on with what you do. But Stacy and Jim, it's such a pleasure to see you both again. Thank you for taking time with me today. Great Thank to talk you. to you. Thanks. In the Buddhism we practice, we say that joy and sorrow are facts of life. Everybody experiences both of them. And we also don't make a distinction by saying some people are bad, and some people are good. Everybody's bad and good. Look in the mirror. Everybody's bad and good. There's no people that are different in that way. So what we teach in Buddhism is that if you want to find a way to turn sorrow into joy, that can be done. You look inside and say, what can I learn from this? There it is, my friends. Conversations from the 2023 Montreal International Jazz Festival. The Third Story is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit third-story.com to see the full archive, sign up and subscribe. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. And visit patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast to help turn your sorrow into joy. I'll be back in your headspace again before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.